0: section one of come rack come rope this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by james carson come rack come rope by robert hugh benson book one chapter one part one there should be no sight more happy than a young man riding to meet his love his eyes should shine his lips should sing he should slap his mare upon her shoulder and call her his darling the puddles upon his way should be turned to pure gold and the stream that runs beside him should chatter her name yet as robin rode to marjorie none of these things were done it was a still day of frost the sky was arched above him across the high hills like that terrible crystal which is the vault above which sits god hard blue from horizon to horizon the fringe of feathery birches stood like filigree work above him on his left on his right ran the durent sucking softly among his sedges on this side and that lay the flat bottom through which he went meadowland broken by rushes his mare cecily stepped along now cracking the thin ice of the little pools with her dainty feet now going gently over peaty ground, blowing thin clouds from her red nostrils, yet unencouraged by word or caress from her rider, who sat heavy and all but slouching, staring with his blue eyes under puckered eyelids, as if he went to an appointment which he would not keep. Yet he was a very pleasant lad to look upon, smooth-faced and gallant, mounted and dressed in a manner that should give any lad joy. He wore great gauntlets on his hands. He was in his habit of green. He had his steel-buckled leather belt upon him beneath his cloak and a pair of daggers in it, with his long sword looped up. He had his felt hat on his head, buckled again and decked with half a pheasant's tail. He had his long boots of undressed leather that rose above his knees, and on his left wrist sat his grim falcon, Agnes, hooded and belled, not because he rode after game, but from mere custom and to give her the air. He was meeting his first man's trouble. Last year he had said good-bye to Derby Grammar School, of old my Lord Bishop Jordan's foundation, situated in st peter's churchyard here he had done the right and usual things he had learned his grammar he had fought he had been chastised he had robed the effigy of his pious founder in a patched doublet with a saucepan on his head but that had been done before he had learned veneration and so had gone home again to matstead proficient in latin english history writing good manners and chess to live with his father to hunt to hear mass when a priest was within reasonable distance to indite painful letters now and then on matters of the estate and to learn how to bear himself generally as should one of master's rank the son of a gentleman who bore arms and his father's father before him he dined at twelve he supped at six he said his prayers and blessed himself when no strangers were by. He was something of an herbalist, as a sheer hobby of his own. He went to feed his falcons in the morning, he rode with them after dinner. From last August he had found himself riding north more often than south since Marjorie lived in that quarter. And now all had been crowned last Christmas Eve, when in the enclosed garden at her house he had kissed her two hands suddenly and made her a little speech he had learned by heart after which he kissed her on the lips as a man should in the honest noon sunlight all this was as it should be there was no doubts or disasters anywhere marjorie was an only daughter as he an only son her father it is true was but a derby lawyer but he and his wife had a good little estate above the Hatterjage Valley, and a stone house in it. As for religion, that was all well, too. Master Manners was as good a Catholic as Master Audrey himself, and the families met at Mass perhaps as much as four or five times in the year, either at Padley, where Sir Thomas's chapel still had priests coming and going, sometimes at Dethick, in the Babington's barn, sometimes as far north as harewood and now a man's trouble was come upon the boy the cause of it was as follows robin audrey was no more religious than a boy of seventeen should be yet he had had a few doubts about the matter as if he had been a monk his mother had taught him well up to the time of her death ten years ago and he had learned from her as well as from his father when that professor spoke of it at all that there were two kinds of religion in the world the true and the false that is to say the catholic religion and the other one certainly there were shades of differences in the other one the turk did not believe precisely as the ancient roman nor yet as the modern protestant yet these distinctions were subtle and negligible they were all swallowed up in a unity of falsehood next he had learned that the catholic religion was at present blown upon by many persons in high position that pains and penalties lay upon all who adhered to it sir thomas fitzherbert for instance lay now in the fleet in london on that very account his own father too three or four times in the year was under necessity of paying over heavy sums for the privilege of not attending Protestant worship, and indeed had been forced last year to sell a piece of land over on Lee's Moor for this very purpose. Priests came and went at their peril. He himself had fought two or three battles over the affair in St. Peter's churchyard until he had learned to hold his tongue. But all this was just part of the game, It seemed to him as inevitable and eternal as the changes of the weather. Matstead Church, he knew, had once been Catholic, but how long ago he did not care to inquire. He only knew that for a while there had been some doubt on the matter, and that before Mr. Barton's time, who was now minister there, there had been a proper priest in the place who had read English prayers there and a sort of mass which he had attended as a little boy. Then this had ceased. The priest had gone, and Mr. Barton came, and since that time he had never been to church there, but had heard the real mass, wherever he could, with a certain secrecy. And there might be further perils in future, as there might be thunderstorms or floods. There was still the memory of the descent of the commissioners a year or two after his birth, He had been brought up on the stories of riding and counter-riding, and the hiding away of altar-plate and beads and vestments. But all this was in his bones and blood. It was as natural that professors of the false religion should seek to injure and distress professors of the true, as that the foxes should attack the poultry-yard. One took one's precautions, one hoped for the best and one was quite sure that one day the happy ancient times his mother had told him of would come back and christ's cause be vindicated and now the foundations of the earth were moved and heaven reeled above him for his father after a month or two of brooding had announced on saint stephen's day that he could tolerate it no longer that god's demands were unreasonable that after all the protestant religion was the religion of her grace that men must learn to move with the times and that he had paid his last fine at easter he observed he would take the bread and wine in matstead church and robin would take them too part two the sun stood half way towards his setting as robin rode up from the valley Past Padley over the steep ascent that led towards Booth's edge. The boy was brighter a little as he came up. He had counted above eighty snipe within the last mile and a half, and he was coming near to Marjorie. About him, rising higher as he rose, stood the great low-backed hills. Cicely stepped out more sharply, snuffing delicately for she knew her way well enough by now and looked for a feed, and the boy's perplexities stood off from him a little. Matters must surely be better so soon as Marjorie's clear eyes looked upon them. Then the roofs of Padley disappeared behind him, and he saw the smoke going up from the little timbered hall standing back against its bare wind-blown trees. A great clatter and din of barking broke out as the mare's hooves sounded on the half-paved space before the great door, and then in the pause a gaggling of geese, solemn and earnest from out of sight, Jacob led the outcry, a great mastiff, chained by the entrance, of the breed of which three are set to meet a bear and four a lion. Then two harriers whipped round the corner, and a terrier's head showed itself over the wall of the herb garden on the left, as a man, bareheaded in his shirt and breeches, ran out suddenly with a thonged whip, in time to meet a pair of spaniels in full career. Robin sat his horse silently till peace was restored, his right leg flung across the pommel, untwisting Agnes's leech from his fist. Then he asked for Mistress Marjorie, and dropped to the ground, leaving his mare and falcon in the man's hands with an air. He flicked his fingers to growling Jacob as he went past to the side entrance on the east, stepped in through the little door that was beside the great one, and passed on as he had been bidden into the little court, turned to the left, went up an outside staircase, and so down a little passage to the ladies' parlour where he knocked upon the door. The voice he knew called to him from within, and he went in, smiling to himself. Then he took the girl who awaited him there in both his arms, and kissed her twice, first her hands and then her lips, for respect should come first and Arger second. My love, said Robin, and threw off his hat with the pheasant's tail for coolness's sake. It was a sweet room, this which he already knew by heart for it was here that he had sat with marjorie and her mother silent and confused evening after evening last autumn it was here too that she had let him last christmas eve scarcely ten days ago after he had kissed her in the enclosed garden but the low frosty sunlight lay in it now upon the blue-painted wainscot that rose half up the walls the tall presses where the linen lay the pieces of stuff embroidered with pale lutes and wreaths that Mistress Manners had bought in Derby, hanging now over the plaster spaces. There was a chimney, too, newly built, that was thought a great luxury, and in it burned an armful of logs, for the girl was setting out new linen for the household, and the scents of lavender and burning wood disputed the air between them. "'I thought it would be you,' she said, when I heard the dogs.' she piled the last rolls of linen in an ordered heap and came to sit beside him robin took one hand in his and sat silent she was of an age with him perhaps a month younger and as it ought to be was his very contrary in all respects where he was fair she was pale and dark his eyes were blue hers black he was lusty and showed promise of broadness she was slender and what news do you bring with you now she said presently he evaded this mistress manners he asked mother has a megrim she said she is in her chamber and she smiled at him again for these two as is the custom of young persons who love one another had said not a word on either side neither he to his father nor she to her parents they believed as young persons do that parents who bring children into the world hold it as a chief danger that their children should follow their example and themselves be married besides there is something delicious in secrecy then i will kiss you again he said while there is opportunity making love is a very good way to pass the time above all when that same time presses and other disconcerting things should be spoken of instead and this device robin now learned he spoke of a hundred things that were of no importance of the dress that she wore russet as it should be for country girls with the loose sleeves folded back above her elbows that she might handle the linen her apron of coarse linen her steel buckled shoes he told her that he loved her better in that than in her costume of state the rough the fardingale the brocaded petticoat and all the rest in which he had seen her once last summer at babington house he talked then when she would hear no more of that of tuesday seven night when they would meet for hawking in the lower chase of the padley estates and proceeded then to speak of agnes whom he had left on the fist of the man who had taken his mare of her increasing infirmities and her crimes of crabbing and all the while he held her left hand in both of his and fitted her fingers between his and kissed them again when he had no more to say on any one point, and wondered why he could not speak of the matter on which he had come and how he should tell her. And then at last she drew it from him. "'And now, my Robin,' she said, "'tell me what you have in your mind. "'You have talked of this and that and Agnes and Jock,' and padley chase and you have not once looked me in the eyes since you first came in now it was not shame that had held him from telling her but rather a kind of bewilderment the affair might hold shame indeed or anger or sorrow or complaisance but he did not know and he wished as young men of decent birth should wish to present the proper emotion on its right occasion he had pondered on the matter continually since his father had spoken to him on St. Stephen's night. And at one time it seemed that his father was acting the part of a traitor, and at another of a philosopher. If it were indeed true, after all, that all men were turning Protestant, and that there was not so much difference between the two religions, then it would be the act of a wise man to turn Protestant too, if only for a while and on the other hand his pride of birth and his education by his mother and his practice ever since drew him hard the other way he was in a strait between the two he did not know what to think and he feared what marjorie might think it was this then that had held him silent he feared what marjorie might think for that was the very thing that he thought that he thought too and he foresaw a hundred inconveniences and troubles, if it were so. "'How did you know I had anything in my mind?' he asked. "'Is it not enough reason for my coming that you should be here?' She laughed softly, with a pleasant scornfulness. "'I read you like a printed book,' she said. "'What else are women's wits given them for?' He fell to stroking her hand again at that, but she drew it away. "'Not until you have told me,' she said." so then he told her it was a long tale for it began so far ago at last august when his father had come back from giving evidence before the justices at Derby on a matter of witchcraft and had been questioned again about his religion it was then that robin had seen moodiness succeed to anger and long silence to moodiness he told the tale with a true lover's art for he watched her face and trained his tone and his manner as he saw her thoughts come and go in her eyes and lips like gusts of wind across standing corn and at last he told her outright what his father had said to him on st stephen's night and how he himself had kept silence marjorie's face was as white as a moth's wing when he was finishing and her eyes like sunset pools but she flamed up bright and rosy as he finished you kept silence she cried i did not wish to anger him my dear he is my father he said gently the color died out of her face again and she nodded once or twice and a great pensiveness came down on her he took her hand again softly and she did not resist The only doubt, she said presently, as if she talked to herself, is whether you had best be gone at Easter, or stay and face it out. Yes, said Robin, with his dismay come fully to the birth. Then she turned on him, full of a sudden tenderness and compassion. Oh, my Robin, she cried, and I have not said a word about you and your own misery. I was thinking but of Christ's honour. You must forgive me what must it be for you that it should be your father you are sure that he means it my father does not speak until he means it he is always like that he asks counsel from no one he thinks and he thinks and then he speaks and it is finished she fell then to thinking again her sweet lips compressed together and her eyes frightened and wondering searching round the hanging above the chimney breast it presented Icarus in the chariot of the sun, and it was said in Derby that it had come from my lord Abbott's lodging at Bolton. Meantime Robin thought, too. He was as wax in the hands of this girl, and knew it, and loved that it should be so. Yet he could not help his dismay when he waited for her seal to come down on him and stamp him to her model, for he foresaw more clearly than ever now the hundred inconveniences that must follow now that it was evident that to marjorie's mind and therefore to god almighty's there must be no tampering with the old religion he had known that it must be so yet he had thought on the way here of a dozen families he knew who in his own memory had changed from allegiance to the pope of rome to that of a grace without seeming one penny the worse There were the Martins down there in Derby, the Squire and his Lady of Ashenden Hall, the Conways of Matlock, and the rest. These had all changed, and though he did not respect them for it, yet the truth was that they were not yet stricken by thunderbolts or eaten by the plague, he had wondered whether there was not a way to do as they had done, yet without the disgrace of it. However, this was plainly not to be so with him he must put up with the inconveniences as well as he could, and he just waited to hear from Marjorie how this must be done. She turned to him again at last. Twice her lips opened to speak, and twice she closed them again. Robin continued to stroke her hand and wait for judgment the third time she spoke. "'I think you must go away,' she said, for Easter tell your father that you cannot change your religion simply because he tells you so i do not see what else is to be done he will think perhaps that if you have a little time to think you will come over to him well that is not so but it may make it easier for him to believe it for a while you must go somewhere where there is a priest where can you go robin considered i could go to dethick he said That is not far enough away, I think. I could come here, he suggested artfully. A smile lit in her eyes, shone in her mouth, and passed again into seriousness. That is scarcely a mile further, she said. We must think. Will he be very angry, Robin? Robin smiled grimly. I have never withstood him in a great affair, he said. He is angry enough over little things. Poor Robin. Oh, he is not unjust to me. He is a good father to me. That makes it all the sadder, she said. And there is no other way, he asked presently. She glanced at him. Unless you would withstand him to the face, would you do that, Robin? I will do anything you tell me, he said simply. You darling, well, Robin, listen to me. It is very plain that sooner or later you will have to withstand him. You cannot go away every time there is communion at Matstead, or indeed every Sunday. Your father would have to pay the fines for you. I have no doubt unless you went away altogether, but I think you had better go away for this time. He will almost expect it, I think. At first he will think that you will yield to him, and then, little by little, unless God's grace brings him back to the faith, he will learn to understand that you will not but it will be easier for him that way and he will have time to think what to do with you too robin what would you do if you went away robin considered again i can read and write he said i am a latinist i can train falcons and hounds and break horses i do not know if there is anything else i can do you darling she said again these two as will have been seen were as simple as children and as serious children are not gay and light-hearted except now and then just as men and women are not serious except now and then they are grave and considering all that they lack is experience these two then were real children they were grave and serious because a great thing had disclosed itself to them in which two or three large principles were present and no more There was that love of one another, whose consummation seemed imperilled, for how could these two ever wed if Robin were to quarrel with his father? There was the religion which was in their bones and blood, the religion for which already they had suffered and their fathers before them. There was the honor and loyalty which this new and more personal suffering demanded, now louder than ever and in marjorie at least as will be seen more plainly later there was a strong love of jesus christ and his mother whom she knew from her hidden crucifix and her beads and her jesus psalter which she used every day as well as in her own soul to be wandering together once more among the hills of derbyshire sheltering at peril of their lives in stables in barns and little secret chambers because there was no room for them in their own places it was this last consideration as robin had begun to guess that stood strongest in the girl it was this too as again he had begun to guess that made her all that she was to him that gave her that strange serious air of innocency and sweetness and drew from him a love that was nine-tenths reverence and adoration he always kissed her hands first it will be remembered before her lips so then they sat and considered and talked they did not speak much of her grace nor of her grace's religion nor of her counsellors and affairs of state these things were but toys and vanities compared with matters of love and faith neither did they speak much of the commissioners that had been to derbyshire once and would come again or of the alarms and the dangers and the priest-hunters since those things did not at present touch them very closely it was rather of robin's father and whether and when the maid should tell her parents, and how this new trouble would conflict with their love. They spoke, that is to say, of their own business, and of God's, and of nothing else. The frosty sunshine crept down the painted wainscot, and lay at last at their feet, reddening to rosiness. Part three. Robin rode away at last with a very clear idea of what he was to do in the immediate present, and with no idea at all of what was to be done later. Marjorie had given him three things. Advice, a pair of beads that had been the property of Mr. Cuthbert Main, seminary priest recently executed in Cornwall for his religion, and a kiss, the first deliberate free-will kiss she had ever given him the first he was to keep the second he was to return the third he was to remember and these three things or rather his consideration of them worked upon him as he went her advice besides that which has been described was principally to say his jesus psalter more punctually to hear mass whenever that was possible to trust in god and to be patient and submissive With his father in all things that did not touch divine love and faith the pair of beads that were once mr mains he was to keep upon him always day and night and to use them for his devotions the kiss well he was to remember this and to return it to her upon their next meeting a great star came out as he drew near home his path took him not through the village but behind it near enough for him to hear the barkings of the dogs and to smell upon the frosty air the scent of the wood fires the house was a great one for these parts there was a small gatehouse before it built by his father for dignity with a lodge on either side and an arch in the middle and beyond this lay the short road straight and broad that went up to the court of the house This court was, on three sides of it, buildings. The hall and buttery and the living rooms in the midst, with the stables and falconry on the left and the servants' lodgings on the right. The fourth side, that which lay opposite to the little gatehouse, was a wall with a great double gate in it, hung on stone posts that had, each of them, a great stone dog that held a blank shield. All this latter part, the wall with the gate, the stables and the servants' lodgings, as well as the gate-house without, had been built by the lad's father twenty years ago, to bring home his wife too. For until that time the house had been but a little place, though built of stone, and solid and good enough. The house stood half-way up the rise of the hill, above the village, with woods about it and behind it and it was above these woods behind that great star came out like a diamond in enamel-work and robin looked at it and fell to thinking of marjorie again putting all other thoughts away then as he rode through into the court on to the cobblestones a man ran out from the stable to take his mare from him master babington is here he said he came half an hour ago he is in the hall yes sir they are at supper the hall at matstead was such as that of most esquires of means its dais was to the south end and the buttery entrance and the screens to the north through which came the servers with the meat in the midst of the floor stood the rear dos with the fire against it and a round vent overhead in the roof through which went the smoke and came the rain the stables stood down the hall one on either side with the master's table at the dais end set crossways it was not a great hall though that was its name it ran perhaps forty feet by twenty it was lighted not only by the fire that burned there through the winter day and night but by eight torches in cressets that hung against the walls and sadly smoked them the master's table was lighted by six candles of latin on common days and of silver upon festivals there were but two at the master's table this evening mr audrey himself a smallish high-shouldered man ruddy-faced with bright blue eyes like his son's and no hair upon his face for this was the way of old men then in the country at least and mr anthony babington a young man scarcely a year older than robin himself of a brown complexion and a high look in his face but a little pale too with study for he was learned beyond his years and read all the books that he could lay hand to it was said even that his own verses and a prose lament he had written upon the death of a hound was read with pleasure in london by the lords and gentlemen it was as long ago as seventy-one that his verses had first become known when he was still serving in the school of good manners as page in my lord shrewsbury's household they were considered remarkable for so young a boy so it was to this company that robin came walking up between the tables after he had washed his hands at the lavatory that stood by the screens you are late lad said his father i was over at padley sir good day anthony then silence fell again for it was the custom in good houses to keep silence or very nearly at dinner and supper at times music would play if there was music to be had or a scholar would read from a book for a while at the beginning from the holy gospels in devout households or from some other grave book but if there were neither music nor reading all would hold their tongues robin was hungry from his riding and the keen air and he ate well first he stayed his appetite a little with a hunch of cheat bread and a glass of pomage, while the servant was bringing him an entry of eggs cooked with parsley then he ate this and next came half a wild duck cooked with sage and sweet potatoes and last of all a florentine which he ate with a cup of canarian he ate heartily and quickly, while the two waited for him, and nibbled at Marchpane. Then, when the doors were flung open, and the troop of servants came in to their supper, Mr. Audrey blessed himself, and for them too, and they went out by a door behind into the wainscoted parlour, where the new stove from London stood, and where the conserves and muscadel awaited them. For this or like it, had been the procedure in matstead hall ever since robin could remember when first he had come from the women to eat his food with the men and how were all at booth's edge asked mr audrey when all had pulled off their boots in country fashion and were sitting each with his glass beside him through the door behind came the clamour of the farm men and the keepers of the chase and the servants over their food i saw marjorie only sir said the boy mr manners was in derby and mrs manners had a megrim mrs manners is aging swifter than her husband observed anthony there seemed a constraint upon the company this evening robin spoke of his ride of things which he had seen upon it of a wood that should be thinned next year and anthony made a quip or two such as he was accustomed to make but the master sat silent for the most part speaking to the lads once or twice for civility's sake but no more and presently silences began to fall that were very unusual things in mr anthony's company for he had a quick and a gay wit and talked enough for five robin knew very well what was the matter it was what lay upon his own heart as heavy as lead but he was sorry that the signs of it should be so evident and wondered what he should say to his friend anthony when the time came for telling st anthony was as ardent for the old faith as any in the land it was a bitter time this for the old families that served god as their fathers had and desired to serve their prince too for now and again the rumor would go abroad that another house had fallen and another name gone from the old roll. And what would Anthony Babington say, thought the lad, when he heard that Mr. Audrey, who had been so hot and persevered so long, must be added to these? And then on a sudden Anthony himself opened on a matter that was at least cognate. I was hearing to-day from Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert that his uncle would be let out again of the fleet soon to collect his fines. He spoke bitterly, and indeed there was reason, for not only were the recusants, as the Catholics were named, put in prison for their faith, but fined for it as well, and let out of prison to raise money for this, by selling their farms or estates. "'He will go to Norbury?' asked Robin. "'He will come to Padley, too,' it is thought.' her grace must have her money for her ships and her men and for her pursuivants to catch us all with and it is we that must pay shall you sell again this year sir mr audrey shook his head pursing up his lips and staring upon the fire i can sell no more he said then an agony seized upon robin lest his father should say all that was in his mind he knew it must be said yet he feared its saying, and with a quick wit he spoke of that which he knew would divert his friend. And the Queen of Scots, he said, have you heard more of her? Now Anthony Babington was one of those spirits that live largely within themselves, and therefore see that which is without through a haze or midst of their own moods. He read much in the poets. You would say that Virgil and Ovid— as well as the poets of his own day were his friends he lived within surrounded by his own images and therefore he loved and hated with ten times the ardour of a common man he was furious for the old faith furious against the new he dreamed of wars and gallantry and splendour you could see it even in his dress in his fur doublet the embroideries at his throat his silver-hilted rapier as well as in his port and countenance and the burning heart of all his images the mirror on earth of mary in heaven the emblem of his piety the mistress of his dreams she who embodied for him what the courtiers in london protested that elizabeth embodied for them the pearl of great price the one among ten thousand this for him was mary stuart queen of scotland now prisoner in her cousin's hands going to and fro from house to house with a guard about her yet with all the seeming of liberty and none of its reality the rough bitterness died out of the boy's face and a look came upon it as of one who sees a vision queen mary he said as if he pronounced the name of the mother of god yes i have heard of her she is in Norfolk, I think. Then he let flow out of him the stream that always ran in his heart like sorrowful music, ever since the day when first, as a page, in my Lord Shrewsbury's house in Sheffield, he had set eyes on that Queen of Sorrows. Then again, upon the occasion of his journey to Paris, he had met with Mr. Morgan, her servant, and the Bishop of Glasgow, her friend, whose talk had excited and inspired him he had learned from them something more of her glories and beauties and remembering what he had seen of her adored her the more he leaned back now shading his eyes from the candles upon the table and began to sing his love and his queen he told of new insults that had been put upon her new deprivations of what was left to her liberty he did not speak now of elizabeth by name since a fountain even of talk, should not give out at once sweet water and bitter. But he spoke of the day when Mary should come herself to the throne of England, and take that which was already hers, when the night should roll away, and the morning star arise, and the faith should come again like the flowing tide, and all things be again as they had been from the beginning.' it was rank treason that he talked such as would have brought him to tyburn if it had been spoken in london in indiscreet company it was that treason which her grace herself had made possible by her faithlessness to god and man such treason as god himself must have mercy upon since he reads all hearts and their intentions the others kept silence at the end he stood up then he stooped for his boots i must be riding sir he said mr audrey raised his hand to the latin bell that stood beside him on the table i will take anthony to his horse said robin suddenly for a thought had come to him then good-night sir said anthony as he drew on his second boot and stood up the sky was all ablaze with stars now as they came out into the court on their right shone the high windows of the little hall where peace now reigned except for the clatter of the boys who took away the dishes and the night was very still about them in the grip of the frost for the village went early to bed and even the dogs were asleep robin said nothing as they went over the paving for his determination was not yet ripe and anthony was still aglow with his own talk then as the servant who waited for his master with the horses showed himself in the stable arch with a lantern robin's mind was made up i have something to tell you he said softly tell your man to wait eh tell your man to wait with the horses his heart beat hot and thick in his throat as he led the way through the screens and out beyond the hall and down the steps again into the plusance anthony took him by the sleeve once or twice BUT HE SAID NOTHING, AND WENT ON ACROSS THE GRASS AND OUT THROUGH THE OPEN IRON GATE THAT GAVE UPON THE WOODS. HE DARED NOT SAY WHAT HE HAD TO SAY WITHIN THE PRECINCTS OF THE HOUSE, FOR FEAR HE SHOULD BE OVERHEARD AND THE SHAME KNOWN BEFORE ITS TIME. THEN, WHEN THEY HAD GONE A LITTLE WAY INTO THE WOOD, INTO THE DARK OUT OF THE STARLIGHT, ROBIN TURNED, AND AS HE TURNED SAW THE WINDOWS OF THE HALL GO BLACK AS THE BOYS EXTINGUISHED THE TORCHES well whispered anthony sharply for a fool could see that the news was to be weighty and anthony was no fool it was wonderful how robin's thoughts had fixed themselves since his talk with mistress margery he had gone to padley doubting of what he should say doubting what she would tell him asking himself even whether compliance might not be just as well as the prudent way yet now black shame had come on him THE BLACK SHAME THAT ANY WHO WAS A CATHOLIC SHOULD TURN FROM HIS FAITH, BLACKER THAT HE SHOULD SO TURN WITHOUT EVEN A TOUCH OF THE RACK OR THE THREAT OF IT, BLACKEST OF ALL THAT IT SHOULD BE HIS OWN FATHER WHO SHOULD DO THIS. IT WAS PARTLY FOOD AND PARTLY WINE THAT HAD STRENGTHENED HIM, PARTLY ANTHONY'S TALK JUST NOW, BUT THE FRAME AND SUBSTANCE OF IT ALL WAS Marjorie AND HER MANNER OF SPEAKING AND HER FAITH IN HIM AND IN GOD. He stood still, silent, breathing so heavily that Anthony heard him. "'Tell me, Rob, tell me quickly,' Robin drew a long breath. "'You saw that my father was silent,' he said. "'Yes. Stay. Will you swear to me by the mass that you will tell no one what you will hear from me till you hear it from others?' "'I will swear it,' whispered Anthony in the darkness. Again Robin sighed in a long, shuddering breath anthony could hear him tremble with cold and pain well he said my father will leave the church next easter he is tired of paying fines he says and he has bidden me to come with him to matstead church there was dead silence i went to tell marjorie to-day whispered robin she has promised to be my wife some day so i told her but no one else she has bidden me to leave matstead for easter and pray to god to show me what to do afterwards can you help me anthony he was seized suddenly by the arms robin no no it is not possible it is certain i have never known my father to turn from his word from far away in the wild woods came a cry as the two stood there it might be a wolf or fox if any were there or some strange night-bird or a woman in pain it rose it seemed to a scream melancholy and dreadful and then died again the two heard it but said nothing one to the other no doubt it was some beast in a snare or a hunting but it chimed in with the desolation of their hearts so as to seem but a part of it so the two stood in silence the house was quiet now and most of those within it upon their beds only as the two knew there still sat in silence within the little wainscoted parlour with his head on his hand and a glass of muscadel beside him he of whom they thought the father of one and the friend and host of the other it was not until this instant in the dark and to the quiet with the other lad's hands still gripped on to his arms that this boy understood the utter shame and the black misery of that which he had said And the other heard. End of book one, chapter one. Recording by James Carson.